When any human being, any member of the human family is a victim of violence, they deserve justice. This inherent truth is why fetal homicide laws exist. Today we speak with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life. Clark walks us through how fetal homicide laws were originally created, the impressive successes they continue to have in communities across America, and why fetal homicide laws are an important component to protect life and to build a culture of life across our great nation. I am Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by the original crew. I think this was from episode one of Life, Liberty, and Law, Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life, and Noah Brandt. How are you guys doing? Hey, guys. It's great to be with you. You know, you know, Tom, when we sat down to draft the original idea for this this great podcast, we said the first person we want to talk to is Clark Forsyth. It was a no-brainer. Clark has the real story on so much of the pro-life movement and just and he 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 can tell both the history and oftentimes the future of uh of where the movement's heading and all the success we've had and how uh, we can even get past the setbacks. And today's conversation though is about just unmitigated success. That's right. So, yeah, Clark, let's just start with the basics before we get into the nitty gritty. What are fetal homicide laws? That's a phrase that might not be super clear. It wasn't to me initially. Well, they're, uh, they've also been called um, uh, victims, unborn victims of violence laws. Uh, and that, that may be the, the more uh, prevalent phrase used in the, in the public debate and in legislatures these days. Unborn victims of violence. Um, but um, homicide is the basic law. Uh, it means the killing of a human being. And so homicide laws go back in our legal heritage uh, all the way probably to 1200 or before. I mean, centuries. And, uh, and so a homicide is the killing of a human being. And so the question is, is an unborn child a human being? But, but the, other, the other question is, uh, when it comes to law is how do you prove it? How do you prove that someone was alive and they were killed and that the cause was by another human being? And if you erase everything you know about modern medical technology, everything you know about modern medicine, and you go back centuries um, and, and uh, you, you know you ask, well, how did a woman even know she was pregnant? And how did you know, in a time of high infant mortality, mm. how would you know that the, the unborn baby is alive? Yeah. And if, uh, you know, if the mother was battered at f three months or four months or five months or six months or seven months, how would you know that that battering caused the death of the child if you can't even determine the, stat the, the living status of the child, 
and you don't know that much about prenatal development. I mean, the law was formed in the in the you know in the shadows of that time of primitive medical understanding. I think it's important too, as we're talking about this, to realize like as as primitive as it was from our standpoint today. You know, where we have things like ultrasounds, where it can be, you know, you get that portrait, that picture into the womb. Um, the principle, right, is timeless. You know, the principle, like, as you point out, goes back to, should go back to Cain and Abel, right? It does in the cosmic sense. Uh, you know, so there's there's something inherent there that speaks to the human heart. And the question is then, yeah, the the application of that. So I think these this is an incredible sign. It predates um, the principle, predates, you know, all of our of our contemporary abortion debates, doesn't it? It does. Uh, I mean, if you go back to that passage in Exodus, what is it, Exodus 21 or 22, about, uh, you know, two people fighting and a pregnant woman's injured, uh, and if there's uh, injury, um, uh, the, the lawyer's perspective on that whole question is, well, how do they prove it? Mm. That's, that's, that's where the legal wonks come in and ask, well, how did they prove it in, under those conditions? But 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 the the, the the principle that a preborn victim is yeah, has some recourse to justice is even is even there in the Mosaic Law. It's pretty it's it's impressive to think about. T tell us, Clark, you know ab about the history of these laws. You know, so right, we have uh, thousands of years where it's challenging to understand the intricacies of pregnancy and and the intricacies of if they if there is a miscarriage or the death of an unborn victim, what happened? Uh, how how did these laws come into existence? <laughs> Well, the modern fetal homicide laws didn't come into existence until after Roe versus Wade, for the most part. I mean, there was uh, there was some uh, um, movement and progress in legal protection as medical technology developed, and as med under uh, understanding of prenatal development uh, uh, progressed in the progressed in the 20th, 20th century, but. Um, but um, uh, so so the law followed the medicine, and as medical right. knowledge advanced, the law, legal protection advanced. So, for example, in the in the 19th century, there was a very strong movement uh, spearheaded, I think, by doctors uh, who uh, testified in state legislatures and influenced state legislatures uh, to erase the quickening rule that the baby's only alive at quickening or when the mother can feel fetal movements. And the doctor said, that's, that's obsolete. That quickening rule's obsolete. You know, that was in the common law in the 1200s or 1400s or 1600s. You got to erase that because we now know the baby's alive at conception. And now, Clark, you know, close listeners will, will remember past times when you've been on and, and people like Professor Joseph Delapin have been on and explained what quickening is. But really briefly, can you tell us again? I think that, that it's a word we don't use anymore and it's not really something that we describe in that way. So what, what, what is quickening? Well, you've heard the phrase, the quick and the dead, the quick, the quick meaning the alive or the living. And so quick uh, originally meant alive um, or animated. Uh, to go back to the to the old Latin, um, and so the quickening rule was was or the quick quickening was simply the time when a when a mother a pregnant mother first feels fetal movement, and, and, and this can seem arbitrary, and people still might point out point to this standard today when trying to say that pro life laws shouldn't start from conception or sometime like that. But the reason why quick quickening was used back then 
was because it was the earliest available sign to confirm a woman was pregnant, right? It wasn't the latest available. It was the earliest available. Uh, it was at the time, in the time of primitive medicine, it was the most reliable. Um, the law basically said before the time of quickening, whenever that comes at 16 to 18 weeks or 20 weeks or whatever, before that time, all the other signs were ambiguous. So there it's, were signs. It's, it's a bit of a red herring whenever people throw that out today, right? Say, you know, well, this law was only intended to protect people after after quickening. It's a bit. It's a bit of a red herring. It's not. It's not really addressing the core of an argument. It was qu qu quickening was a standard used because of the technology available. Yeah, and at the time it was reliable and it was uh, it was pretty solid and maybe it was the best the law could do because of the availability of medicine. But once uh, once it was understood based on medical science that the baby's alive at conception uh, or the the that human the life of a human being begins at conception, quickening became obsolete. And and the more that uh, that medical science advanced, the more obsolete quickening became. You know, and I, I want to dig into this for a minute because this is, I think, a really fascinating contradiction here. On the one end, you know, critics, those who tend to be on the pro-abortion side, will look at something like quickening and they will say, oh, you know, that's that's primitive as, as it, you know, it's it's it should be, you know, left in the past. It's a ridiculous standard, whatever. But as Noah, you, as you point out, it's the most sensible. It's the most intuitive, right? You think of every every woman, every mother. Right. There's this joyous moment that first time you feel the baby kick, you know, you want to share that with your with your husband or with your partner. Uh, you want to celebrate that in your family or in your community. It's the most intuitive thing. And, you know, that 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 would be the standard makes sense today. You know, when we look at that and we say, oh, that's primitive, you know, isn't it silly? They didn't have high tech, you know, medical instruments. Isn't it silly? They didn't have pregnancy tests in the way that we do today. You know, but today, today it's much worse. You know, we're not we're not primitive today, maybe in that sense, but we are barbaric. Actually, it's much worse because we know far sooner when life exists, and instead we've we've decided to be sophistical about it. Right? We say, well, you know, it's it's only maybe when a baby's born that it counts as a person, and it's like which which of those two options, if the standard's going to be, you know, the earliest physical sign of life uh, in the womb, or uh, literal birth. Which one of those is more primitive viewpoint? Well, well, that uh, and this discussion again reminds us of how perverse Roe versus Wade was, and the court's opinion in Roe versus Wade, because even though there was an advance in legal protection in the 20th century uh, before 1973, and even though there was a great advance in medical understanding even as as early as the 19th century, uh, Justice Blackmun uh, arbitrarily adopts this term of potential life when it, be, when, it, when it comes to the unborn child. He refers to the unborn child not as an unborn child, but as potential life, even though uh, we uh, the law understood it was actual life and medicine understood it was actual life. So to some extent, Blackmun's use of the term potential life was a challenge um, uh, you think it's potential life, but the law says it's actual life. It's an actual living human being. Well, and we, and, we, we fall into this trap even on our side, right? That's we 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 uh, we. It's easy to criticize Justice Blackman and, and the drafters of Roe v. Wade, 
but even, you know, a great hero of mine and probably many people listening, Justice Antonin Scalia, right, talking about uh, walking around persons, right, that, that, that American rights are granted to walking around persons. Fetal homicide laws codify that truth, right, that you, you don't need to be walking around to be given uh, the right to life and the, and the right to justice. Well, I think the context of, of uh, Scalia didn't doubt prenatal development. Scalia didn't doubt um, uh, the statutory development in, for fetal homicide. Uh, I think his off-the-cuff uh, talk about that um, was, uh, you know, over dinner. It wasn't a real legal analysis. Um, but in any case, um, I think, and I think he was also, uh, he was also perhaps just um, referring to kind of the casual understanding that some some people might have. That's one of my worst nightmares, by the way. It's like you have a, a, a great, tremendous career. That's what we want, right? We want to make a good public impact. I think of like uh, of Thomas Jefferson, right? You know, his, his letter, uh, I think it was, it was to a Baptist congregation, right? Where he, he ca- kind of casually mentions the idea of a separation of church and state, you know? And in the way that he's writing it, he's writing, you know, almost the opposite of what we think today, where we think of, you know, the, the point of the of the regime that the founders set up was to protect the flourishing of religion. Uh, and that's what the, the nature of that separation was intended to do. And, and, and this kind of, you know, offhanded comment in a letter of Jefferson's has become, you know, as if as if it's in the Constitution itself. And now it's held up to achieve the opposite in many cases, right? People say there should be no religious expression in public life. There should be no no expressions of, of Christian or any other religious belief in the public square. And so, yeah, for Scalia, too, it's funny to hear, you know, that a comment like walking around persons kind of thrown out at a dinner or something might become one of the things that, that he's more remembered for. It's, uh, it, it, it's a good reminder to, uh, to uh, guard our tongues in conversation, isn't it? Clark, can you tell us the story you were telling me before we started recording uh, back to Chicago in the, the 70s and 80s about when Americans United for Life uh, pushed for one of the first post-Roe fetal homicide laws based on a, uh, a, a tragic murder that happened in the area? Yeah, back in 75, there was a, a homicide prosecution. Um, a, a pregnant woman was killed and... Uh, AUL lawyers appealed, wrote a, wrote a legal analysis and a memo to the states, the Cook County state's attorney. Uh, Chicago is the major city in Cook County, and uh, wrote a memo to the Cook County state's attorney, uh, urging him uh, to prosecute the offender for a second homicide for the death of the unborn child under existing Illinois law, and the and the Cook County state's attorney agreed to do that. And undertook the prosecution, but it got blocked by the courts who said this wasn't uh, the intent of our law or the current law doesn't in Illinois doesn't apply to the unborn child and basically threw out, the, threw out a court the fetal homicide prosecution. But that then spurred an effort in the legislature to amend the law. And Illinois eventually did that in 1986 and was uh, Illinois was, uh, if not the first, one of the first with a fetal homicide law. But once, once they went into the legislature, they could define it more precisely. So they could say this law applies from conception or this law applies without regard to gestational age. 
and uh, enable the law then to extend protection from conception uh, in a very clear way. And I think that's important because um, these, these statutory laws these uh, are democratically approved. Uh, they're approved by the, the state Senate and House and, and uh, you know, uh, 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 written in by the governor, uh, uh, approved by the governor, and they become law and they have democratic legitimacy. Um, and what, what that, does that mean, Clark? What does democratic legitimacy mean? Well, our procedures, our, uh, our, our laws are approved um, by the procedures and the constitutional procedures that um, government uh, is guided by, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a crude way, you know, the box are all checked, the democratic boxes are all checked. And um, also, not only are the constitutional and, and democratic procedures followed, but these, these uh, public officials, members of the legislature, the governors, are accountable to the people at regularly scheduled elections. Right. And, and, and so, democratic legitimacy means uh, permanency, too, right? It means staying power. Uh, absolutely. Um, so... Um, uh, these, these, uh, you know, today, 31 states, Wyoming was recently the 31st state to pass a fetal homicide law from conception. And um, um, these laws are, have permanency because they have gone through the democratic process. They've been voted on and they've been signed into law by the governor. Um, and, um, and they have great permanency. And, uh, you know, even if one or two might be reconsidered by a new administration, uh, these 31 laws um, have, uh, have real permanency that is an endorsement of the proposition that the life of a human being begins at conception. So what does it mean, Clark, for states that don't have these laws? I mean, I think when, we're, when we get up to, you know, states of, in the 30s or in the 40s even uh, of having come to a consensus on a particular issue, you know, is that enough to say that, you know, that kind of the American conscience writ large has, has settled on an answer? Uh, is it enough that it's, it's rooted um, in a vote? Um, you know, how do you balance these different goods, right? You know, this, this idea of, the, as we started out the conversation of intuition uh, about life and what, what it deserves in terms of rights and protection and justice um, versus um, the role of democracy. Um, and then, you know, practically speaking, what, what that consensus means, you know, it's like, are we going to have a constitutional amendment on some of these issues of life? Uh, or is it just going to get, continue to be kind of a state by state issue? Well, uh, I think our goal would be to see all 50 states with a fetal homicide law. I mean, we know as a political matter that that's going to be tough in California, you know, in uh, New York State or in Washington State. Um, uh, so the, the states that today we see as the most pro-abortion, you know, the Northeast, the Northwest, um, New York State, New Jersey, um, we, we would, you know, because of politics, would see those as the toughest state to pass a fetal homicide law. Um, but 31 is an, is an impressive number. Three-fifths of the states have a fetal homicide law from conception. Uh, we'd like to grow those state by state, year by year. 
Um, uh, so three-fifths is good. Unanimous. All 50 states would be great. Um, how can, but how can, we be, how can we persuade more states year by year, state by state, to adopt a fetal homicide law from conception? Yeah, and you don't want to backslide either in any of the states that have, have properly recognized this. I mean, I think of New York as an example where, you know, the, the so-called Reproductive uh, Health Act a few years ago, the RHA, this is what uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed. They lit, you know, the World Trade Center pink to celebrate. But, you know, many of the things that the RHA did uh, were, you know, tremendously dangerous for uh, women, for children, for New Yorkers. Uh, and, and that relates to something like fetal homicide, right? Because it, it strips away protections, you know, you had alluded to, Clark, protections for particularly women, you know, facing things like, um, you know, abuse, right? Absolutely. It, it's, it's often overlooked that these laws also protect the pregnant woman. In many cases, who wants the baby? But, um, I mean, we know cases of, uh, you know, the estranged boyfriend battering the, the mother. The, the estranged boyfriend uh, doesn't want the baby. And the estranged boyfriend is, you know, going to be financially liable if the baby is born alive, and doesn't want that. And so the the uh, some of these fetal homicide prosecutions under these laws in court deal with the estranged boyfriend who doesn't want the baby and batters the woman and kills or injures her, and uh, kills the unborn child. Um, uh, or uh, we also know of, you know, the uh, mifepristone or RU486 or the abortifacient in the cocktail. Uh, we've heard, we've heard those, read those stories too. And um, in both of those cases, um, uh, the, uh, the perpetrator should know and the, and the law should say uh, and the state should endorse it that uh, that uh, baby is a human being and if you kill it, uh, it's it's a homicide under the law with very serious consequences. So that that shows that the mother isn't just some quote unquote fetal container. She has a second human being inside her uh, who is also protected from the law. So both are protected. And that that gets into you know the RHA you know also touching in New York on things like you know um, prelude to growing issues like surrogacy, right? Um, and so, you know, you use that, that crazy phrase, Clark, right? But we, we think of, uh, unfortunately, persons as increasingly as if they're, you know, just sort of machines for gestating, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking increasingly in abstracted terms about each other. Uh, it's a weird thing. We get into these phrases that we see now like pregnant persons. I just saw an academic study that came out uh, talking about the, the effect of the COVID-19 virus and vaccines on pregnant persons. And when we lose this sense of, of language and, and who it is that we're talking about, the, the subjects of the laws, uh, it's really hard to have a coherent conversation. And so uh, it, it gets down to a dark path pretty quick when we, uh, when, we, when we break the law apart and you get into those situations where, yeah, you're right, you, have, you can look up on Google all sorts of stories um, you know, from across the country. Mainly, these are stories in states that do have good fetal homicide laws that protect both uh, women and children so that if you do have a, a horrific case of, you know, those kind of stories of a, of a boyfriend or an abusive partner, whomever, um, you know, either physically, you know, attacking violently uh, the mother or, you know, slipping something into her drink or whatever to cause an abortion, you know, the, the woman has recourse in those states. Um, but in a state like New York, they don't. 
It is a shame. Uh, as you know, New York had a actually a 24-week fetal homicide law that was enacted in 1970, and it was on the books for virtually 50 years, or almost 50 years, 49 years when it was repealed. And so now New York doesn't even have a fetal homicide law at 24 weeks. Um, but when, when you repeal these laws, uh, and it hasn't been done a lot, but it's, it was done in New York, uh, you're repealing protection for the pregnant woman. And, um, you know, when you, when you, you uh, obviously abortion advocates think that uh, when a woman gets pregnant, her rights and the fetus's rights are antagonistic. They are in conflict. But in most of these cases, the, the rights of the, uh, uh, and the interests of the mother and the unborn child are in concert. They're coherent. They're together because the mother wants the child. Um, 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 but um, aside from whether it's wanted or not, uh, the law should protect the rights and, and, and the life of both. One of, I think, the most instructive things about fetal homicide laws, Clark, uh, is the truth, the truth inherent in them. You know, I like uh, rhetoric and logic and communication, and I think that these laws communicate something really basic and important. I was talking to my mother uh, this week, who's just a you know normal pro-life lady, uh, Kelly. She's a, she's a great woman. And... The, I, the way we got started on this conversation, I didn't just bring up, what do you think about fetal homicide laws? We were talking about when you go to the grocery store at a lot of places here in Missouri, there are the same way there are handicapped parking spots or parking spots for policemen. There are parking spots for expectant mothers, right? So they can park close to the store and walk in and you know take their groceries back easily. We were talking about how great these were. And my mom just brought up, uh, and I thought it was so wise and interesting, she said, isn't it such a shame and a mark on our society that an expectant mother could go into that parking spot, you know, go to the grocery store, leave, on her way out, get hit by a drunk driver, be tragically killed, and, you know, luckily, that drunk driver could be charged with two crimes. You could be charged with killing the mother and killing that unborn child. Or that mother could drive to Planned Parenthood right after the grocery store and get an abortion and leave, kill kill the child, and the abortionist would be culpable in that too, but there would be absolutely no recourse and no dignity and no justice for that child. And so I think one of the most valuable things about these laws is that it draws out just the blatant hypocrisy of abortion culture in America, right? And it's, it's the same thing. If you, if, if, you, if you want the child, then it's a child. If you don't, then it's a problem to be taken care of at the abortionist for a couple hundred dollars. And uh, many have referred to this as the schizophrenic impact of Roe versus Wade. Uh, that the court declared this nationwide right to abortion on demand for any reason at any time. But when you leave it to the American people, uh, there is great popular support for protecting the child from conception. And um, it's, it's one of the legacies of, of Roe versus Wade. Um, and, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a shame. In, uh, in, in my book, Abuse of Discretion, uh, I, I talked about how one of the clerks for the justices, it was Justice William Brennan, brought to his attention that, that at, the, at the time of, uh, or right before the Roe versus Wade decision, while they were deliberating in the court, 
this clerk brought to the justice's attention the the legal support for the humanity of the unborn child in property law and prenatal injury law and wrongful death law and fetal homicide law um, at the time uh, it is it has grown a lot since then but it was it existed even in 1970-71 and uh, the justice's response to this was we'll deal with that in the next case mm. but it never came and so for 48 years uh, the states have moved ahead with greater protection in tort law and criminal law and yet the court still holds to a right of abortion on demand. And this speaks powerfully, right, Clark, to your great evocative phrase, the Supreme Court is the National Abortion Control Board. I mean, just the the arrogance of, of that mentality, um, as if American, you know, uh, culture is something to be dealt with in a certain respect. I mean, I know he's probably speaking in a limited sense about their, their workload and the cases they decide to take, but... I think it does betray kind of a, a more fundamental arrogance uh, as if these these nine at the time, nine men on the court um, were there to to act as a super legislator. Right. That's what they thought. And they thought they could, uh, you know, settle this issue. I mean, I, I, I've been in recent uh, weeks, I've been going back and reading about the Dred Scott decision in, in 1857 and how Chief Justice Tawney and, and the justices uh uh, Dred Scott was also a 7-2 decision, how they assumed they could settle the slavery issue. They were going to settle the issue for the country by, you know, one one decision and one... What a great service. It didn't work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it didn't work. Uh, and they That's were so right. misguided. Um, and uh, instead, they threw, you know, gas on the fire. No, that's right. You know the 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 impact of Roe and uh, the subsequent uh, jurisprudence on it's just been like dynamite. Not just for the credibility of our legal uh, elite and the the practice of law, but for our culture. Uh, it's just destroyed so much. It's it's caused so much polarization, um, and uh, it's it's something we've got to we've got to figure out genuinely how to resolve. So, as we're talking about fetal homicide here, I'm curious to hear. You know, uh, we talked about New York and some of the the dangerous effects of backsliding. You know, when we when we repeal fetal homicide laws, the people we put at risk. Um, but let's talk about uh, Wyoming uh, and what happened there recently. Clark, can you walk us through? You know, why Wyoming is important to look at. Well, recently Wyoming uh, passed a fetal homicide law. And they became, and they extended protection from conception, or I think as the language in the law says, without regard to gestational age. They became the 31st state to extend protection from conception. So the momentum continues, the number, in, the number of states with these laws continues. Um, this law can be, will be able to be actively enforced in Wyoming. And um, uh, it's, it's just great to see in 2021, the 31st state pass a law from conception to continue this momentum, uh, this movement that has, that, that has uh, gone over the last, you know, five decades in American life. Um, you know, academics, uh, academics, especially legal academics, like to talk about the unborn child as an abstraction or the fetus as an abstraction or conception as a abstraction or does life begin a conception as an abstraction but these laws make it concrete democratically approved um, and um, 
and the public uh, supports these laws. Um, so it's, uh, it's great to see Wyoming uh, join the other states. That's a great, great pro-life achievement. And I think uh, hopefully the momentum will continue to build. You know, some of the states, you know, it's like Wyoming is, is one of the states I would have expected to have had this a long time ago. But it just goes to show that, um, you know, the, the pro-life cause, it needs to happen throughout the country. And it's, it's not always happening in the places that we think it would. Like New York, for instance, I think for many people, when New York repealed the fetal homicide law, I think I know many pro-lifers were kind of surprised that they had one. Um, wow. But it speaks to well, a time it, even in New York when, when things were less polarized. And, and it shows, Tom, right, something we talk about a lot is that there's there's room for pro-life victory and action in every single state and every single community, right? You look at American, Americans United for Life Lifeless, which ranks all 50 states. There's room for more victory and more protection for life in the number one state of Arkansas. And there's a lot of room for, in that the number 50 state in Vermont. And there's room in all the states in between. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So these are these are important things, and it's important to to continue to study history. You know, I think the you know as you're talking about uh, Frederick Douglass and the, the fight over slavery. You know, and I think of uh, of two two great things about you know just the nature of of the child in the womb and and what we've known. Um, you know, we've talked about the the importance of ultrasounds, right, as as presenting a, a portrait and and giving us something that we can see. Um, in a very visceral way to, to take it out of the realm of abstraction. This is something the Supreme Court justices didn't have when they decided Roe in 1973. But you know, any any um, one who wants to look at the history of what we've known, you know, you don't have, have to go back to quickening. You can go back further. I think of uh, you know, have you guys ever seen uh, the the Da Vinci sketches of of the of the child in the womb that he did? These are like pencil sketches, I think. Um, but this is like Amazing. from like 1500 something. Um, mm. A long time ago, and and these are photo real photorealistic talent. sketches of the child in the womb. I'm not sure if these were a result from a, a miscarriage or, or how he depicted these so clearly. Um, but it's like we, and, and this is just one example. But we've known uh, about the nature of of this member of the human family wow. in the womb and what we owe uh, in terms of protection. Um, we just got to go back and, and have humility and continue to study uh, the story of the human family. Well, I think um, uh, one last thought, and, and that is that Wyoming uh, passed the law in 2021, um, and it, these laws sometimes take real perseverance. Um, it may take a decade to pass a law, um, or one, once it's uh, offered in a legislature, it may take multiple legislative sessions, but uh, the pro-life uh, movement in Wyoming persevered and it took some time but they got it done and it's a great story it's a great testament to uh their perseverance and focus all right well something we do every show on life liberty and law is our shot of gratitude we just share something that we're grateful for clark it's been a little while since uh, you and i did this together clark i'm curious to hear what is something that you are grateful for well, you're probably uh, not surprised to uh, hear me say uh, my mother and her witness and her life. My mother passed away God bless her. on February 20th, 2021, uh, not from COVID, but from Alzheimer's. Uh, she lost a multi-year battle with Alzheimer's, and um, uh, we uh, celebrated her uh, her Christian life and witness and service on March 1st. Um, in a simple but beautiful ceremony, and um, um, uh, and so I, uh, I'm grateful for uh, all that she meant to me and uh, our family and so many around us. 
we all come from family, and I think your family, Clark, has been just so so powerful. Certainly in AUL's history, um, you know, first of course in raising you, um, but also in in their strong support right. for America's Center for Life. And you know, your mother, by the way, Clark, you know, her name I think was just so beautiful. Could you share her name? Uh, well, actually, her, her uh, given uh, first name was Lola, but she always used her middle name, which was Imogene. Mm-hmm. And beautiful. Um, uh, beautiful name. Uh, she, uh, it was, it's great. Well, we'll continue to uh, to pray for her and your family, and uh, and are so thankful, Clark. Noah, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Well, to keep on the trend of family, I'm thankful for uh, my little brother who just celebrated his 20th birthday. Uh, his name's Chaim, which means life in Hebrew. And uh, he's an interesting kid. He goes to St. John's College in Annapolis and studies the great books. But he took uh, this last year off uh, for COVID. So he'll be going back in the fall. But he just completed a month-long road trip around the country uh, where they went all the way from Florida to Seattle. And uh, so put, That is great. Put, put, Put fourteen thousand miles on uh, on his on his beat up van, and uh, had a really good time. But I'm happy to be able to celebrate his birthday with him. So uh, happy birthday to to Chaim. Tom. How about you? What are you grateful for? That's awesome. You know, I I'll share first. You know, Noah. I don't know if we've talked about this, but I I've been a traveler as well in the states. I've been to every. Uh, continental state. I've been to Alaska. I just have Hawaii left, and when I've been there, I've been to all fifty. So I'm looking forward to that. Trying to get there before have you we been to Washington D.C. Is that that's what, yeah? That's where I'm going. I'm trying to get to uh, <laughs> try to get to the fiftieth before they add uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico and everybody else and make it harder. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you've been to D.C. though. That would be hard. <laughs> I, I yes, yes, I'm in D.C. currently. That's true. But uh, you know, I think the, uh, the the road trip thing is just such a tremendous thing. So credit to your brother for uh, for creative use of uh, of this past strange year. Um, I'm grateful. Yeah, you, you learn a lot on the road, right? You do. Yeah, you, 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 <laughs> learn, you learn from the people on the road. So uh, we're gonna have to ha- we're gonna have to have a conversation with him on some alternate podcast where we hear about road stories, Jack Kerouac style, from your brother. Sure, he only uh, interacted with the police three times over the month, and ne- no, no time is that true? An actual ticket, yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. So, that's pretty good for fourteen thousand yeah. miles. I think yeah, that's good. Uh, no, I'm I uh, on on the similar theme of family. I'm, I'm grateful for uh, my brother who is going to be celebrating uh, his birthday this summer, and he's uh, he kind of leaned the other direction on COVID, which is he realized that the college experience wouldn't quite be the same. He's at Penn State. Uh, I wish they had a great books program there. By the way, that's an idea for anybody at Penn State listening. Uh, create yeah, one of those. Donor that wants to write write down and dow a great books program. Look, it's a great idea, you know. Uh, but uh, he's uh, he's he's gone the other direction. He's uh, he's just powering away on classes, and he's excited to uh, you know most of these have been uh, online, and so he's really excited uh, this fall because they uh, they're returning to normal. So he's excited to actually be in uh, in State College, Pennsylvania, and, and have a real college experience as he goes into uh, into his next year. So weird freshman year should be a good uh, future. Absolutely, that's great. All right, Clark. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us about fetal homicide laws. We're going to continue the conversation. And of course, for folks who are interested in this and, and interested in, in all the subjects around the abortion issue, they've got to pick up uh, really both of your great books, but in particular, I think, Abuse of Discretion, which is the, the inside story of Roe v. Wade that you wrote, available on Amazon, anywhere that you want to find books online. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation with you, Clark. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Clark. All right, if you enjoyed our show today with Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life on the importance of fetal homicide laws and why, if you're in a state that doesn't have them, you need to get to work. 
get that in place. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Clark Forsyth or for us, just email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.